Welcome to one more edition of Politics and Right. I'm Egberto Willis, your host. Today, we are honored once again to be in the presence of Dr. Richard D. Wolf. He's a professor of economics, Emeritus University of Massachusetts, Amherst, and a visiting professor in the graduate program in international affairs of the University of the New School University in New York City. He is a founder of Democracy at Work and host of their nationally syndicated show, Economic Update. His latest book is The Sickness is the System. Don't we know it? When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself and is available along with his other books, Understanding Socialism and Understanding Marxism at www.democracyatwork.info. Dr. Wolf, it's my pleasure to have you in Politics and Right once again. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. I'm very glad to be here. Let me ask, let me start real simple, sir. Uh, I want to tell our audience, first of all, that I became aware of you after you did a, 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 a symposium called Capitalism Hits the Fan. And this former pure capitalist was forever transformed after seeing that piece. And it changed my life entirely into one who believed in humanity at that point. So my question to you, sir, first of all, is what is wrong with our economy right now? Well, a little bit depends on what you call our economy. If you mean the United States, the capitalist system here, um, let me talk a little bit about what's wrong with that. Uh, but I need a preface. Every economic system in the history of the world shows the following pattern. It's born out of another different system. It changes and grows over time. And then it eventually passes away and gives way to another system that is born and then goes through the same stages. That's true of all ancient village economies, of tribal economies, of slave economic systems, of feudalism. It's true of them all. And what that means is that the system we're living under now, capitalism, is about going to show us pretty much the same pattern. There's no reason to assume it would be otherwise. And we know capitalism was born. We kind of date that to the 17th, 18th century in Britain and Europe. We know it has evolved over the last three or four centuries to become the global system it is today. But I'm afraid the inference is the next stage is it's over. And it really isn't a question of whether, it's only a question of when. And I think if with that background, let me take a couple of minutes and tell you where I think the United States was and is. First of all, let's all remember that the Europeans originally came here and destroyed the existing population. Not 100%, but almost, okay? And they came here and they fought with the uh, native population, they fought with one another. And when the dust cleared, we were a colony of Great Britain. And we became a colony 
and we stayed a colony for a century or more. Now, in the late 18th century, there developed an economy here that was, to make a long story short, sick and tired of being told what to do and how to do it and when to do it by some king thousands of miles away in Britain. So we had a revolutionary war and we became independent. At that time, we were a small secondary part of the big dominant capitalist empire of the world, the British Empire. Mm -hmm. But now let's be honest, over the last century and a half, roughly from the time of our revolution, our, by the way, bloody, violent separation from the British King George III, a reversal took place. The new capitalism of the United States grew and displaced the old capitalism of Britain. The British Empire doesn't exist anymore. It was replaced by the American Empire. There were others who challenged the British Empire, the Germans, for example, uh, the Japanese, but there were two world wars in which these capitalist empires fought each other and they destroyed each other with one exception. Britain's empire was destroyed, the German empire was destroyed, the Japanese empire was destroyed. We were the ones left standing here in the US. So after 1945, with the destruction of everybody else, we emerged as the American capitalist economy. And look, over the last century, it's been a nice ride for us in America. Not for all of us, obviously. I was about to say that, yeah. yeah. Not for all of us, but for the majority and particularly for the white majority, it was a nice uphill ride. But look, if you remember the history I started out with, everybody had to have known that like every other system and like every other empire, you're born, you evolve, and then you get displaced. So let me say where we are now. And I'm not saying anything that most Americans, if they don't know it, they kind of smell it. They can infer it, yeah. Yeah. We're done. We are on the down. And the down is not very much fun. Way less fun <laughs> than on the ride up, you know. Um, and we have a new empire. It's called China. And they are replacing us. They, In large parts, they already have. The war in Ukraine is a footnote to a shift from the dominance of an American capitalism emerging out of Europe and it's shifting over to a new dynamic core of capitalism that is in places like China and India and Brazil and South Africa and those parts of the world that were colonial, that were suppressed for a long time. But like the old colony of the United States, they are no longer willing to have their situations dictated by another part of the world uh, that really looks down its nose at them. And you know, this is very hard. If you look at British history, there are still sizable parts of Britain that still haven't come to terms with the fact <laughs> yeah, that know. the British Empire yeah. 
is a vague memory. We should learn from that because as the saying goes, if you don't learn from history, you will be condemned to repeat it. Yeah, that, that is sad. Now, I, I, I understand that. Now, aren't we doing certain things right now that's exacerbating that death or making yes. that death less pleasurable than it should be? Yes, because of that, unfortunately, is also typical. People who don't understand the situation become increasingly desperate trying to hold on to what history will not let them keep. Uh, that's very classic. You can see it in the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire, the British Empire. They keep trying to hold on. That's half the reason they have a queen. I mean, they try to hold on yes, to the yeah. symbols. You know, it, it's downright funny if you take a step back. Well, here we have here in the United States. Uh, let me give you just some examples so people see it. One of the dominating, dominating powers of the British Empire in the 19th and early 20th century was the fact that the British currency, the British pound sterling, was the global money. It was, the, it was as good as gold, okay? The symbol of the United States over the last century has been the role of the dollar, which was that. In other words, the dollar pushed the London uh, stock markets and the, and the British pound to a secondary role, and it became the dollar. Well, over the last 20 years, as China has emerged, the new economic colossus, the American currency has begun to be less and less the dominant story, and therefore wealthy people, uh, central banks around the country are kind of reducing their holding of dollars as the reserve behind their currency and are beginning to use more and more yuan, the, the Chinese right. currency. Okay, so that was underway. Now you get the Ukraine war. And what does a desperate Biden government do? It seizes the property of foreign central banks, above all Russia. It threatens others. It seizes the private property of wealthy people in Russia. You know, the world's wealthy parked their money in the United States. It was like a subsidy of the whole world. Wealthy people took their savings and put them in a bank in New York and invested them in dollars. You know what they're doing now? They're looking at this country and they're saying, uh-oh, it's on the downswing. We're not keeping our money there. We're not investing. Did we own five apartments on Fifth Avenue in Manhattan, like a piggy bank? Yeah, well, we're gonna sell three of them right now and we're gonna buy apartments someplace else. Here's the joke that's making the rounds in Moscow. Those oligarchs, those super rich people in that country. And by the way, one of the signs of desperation is that the people in Russia we call oligarchs, here we call job-creating investors. The same damn thing. Exactly. It's just, you know, you're just playing verbal games. Anyway, the joke in Moscow goes like this. The oligarchs used to take all their money and keep it in the West, in the United States above all else. But now they can't, they're afraid it'll be snatched. So they're bringing it all home and investing here in Russia, which is very good for us. You know, it's, it, in other words, the United States in its desperate effort 
to stop this historic shift is actually accelerating it. The turn away from the dollar is much worse today than it was two months ago before the invasion of the Ukraine. I mean, people have to understand, however tragic the experience is for people in Ukraine, I mean, it's always tragic to be on the receiving end of war, uh, but this is a footnote, what's going on there. It's, a, it's horrible for them, but in the history of the human race, this is a small moment of conflict between a shrinking, desperate empire on the one hand and an emerging empire, which has the luxury of looking at itself and saying, time is on our side. But of course, if the United States were to become more desperate, if things get really worse, how tragic might they be? What might they do? Could it set off a nuclear war? I don't see how any human being can say that they know that won't happen. I mean, the well, last century we had the two world wars. They were the worst wars we've ever seen and they didn't have nuclear weapons then. And, and, and Professor, what's, what's interesting is that the only country on this planet that we know has used nuclear weapons against other humans, it's us, isn't it? That's right. Those two bombs in uh, Hiroshima and, and Nagasaki, you right. know, you, absolutely. And, and the world knows it. And the world, you know, more and more, I read European newspapers every day. It's part of my job. And I can tell you that even in Europe, allied as it is with the United States, you have more and more people beginning to say what you will hear all over Asia, Africa, and Latin America. Leaders there, whether you like them or not, honest ones, corrupt ones, they're all debating. Maybe it's time for us to change horses because it doesn't look like the one we're on is going to win. It looks like that other one that's coming up fast is going to be the winner. Well, the United I, States has to face this reality. But what I see is a government and mainstream media that are putting their hands in front of their eyes, not willing to see any of it. Well, you know, uh, Dr. Let me let me just uh, say this, Dr. Wolf, because it, it, it is amazing that you said that these are some things that I've been thinking about, right? The rest of the world saw that we were willing to elect a Donald Trump and all that he represents as the president. They also saw that in the election of Biden, who is a step above uh, better than Donald Trump, but at the same time that Donald Trump got more votes in his second election by quite a few millions that he did in the first. And they have to sit back and think, will we put that, uh, will the United States put a crazy person back in the White House again? And what does that mean economically for the rest of the world? Isn't that right? Absolutely. And if you put that together with all of what's going on now, with look, every I'm not asking for people to be sympathetic with super rich people, but the American economy has depended on the world's super rich looking at the U.S. dollar and the U.S. economy as where they can put their money, where it will be safe, where private property is an absolute value. Relate, all yeah. of that. All of that has been destroyed, first by Mr. Trump, as you rightly put it. Let's remember, Mr. Trump declared economic and trade war against China. He 
punished the Chinese companies. He hit them with tariffs. He arranged for the arrest of the daughter of a tycoon, a Chinese tycoon in mm-hmm. Canada. In Canada. And he did everything you can imagine. He promised that he would win the trade war. He did not. He promised that what he was doing would change China's basic politics. It's all a failure. And yet it was the biggest package of sanctions the world had ever seen. Mr. Biden has gone him several steps better, done even more against Russia, not against China. But frankly, because of the alliance between Russia and China, which India basically has now joined, the ability of the United States to call the shots is looking to the whole world like a bit of a bluff. And you know, if you bluff and you get caught, it's never the same game when you do. It's a terrible chance you're taking, which is why you get the bizarre hysteria. But yes, you're right. They've seen not only that Mr. Trump was elected, but that the establishment, the rich corporations that run the country, they didn't prevent it. They let him be the president for four years. And so the rest of the world has to wonder exactly as you put it, what kind of, if the Democrats lose this November or two years from now, what are they going to see? And they have to make their plans now to protect themselves from what might happen. You know what I is think, interesting? Yeah. Uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Wolf, Germany apparently saw that they're spending up the gazoo right now in, in, in self-protection and other places. And uh, I, you mentioned something that I think uh, bears mentioning. You said earlier, and I think it is so important that you read every morning, you read newspapers from around the world, and I, it, it would be great if not only more Americans did that, but if our mainstream media actually brought that to the fold as well. I mean, if you take a look at the, the, the active discussions between certain neoliberal professors in the United States with on Indian TV, you would see a discussion that Americans would not that would, would actually blow their minds. I mean, I, I heard, I heard. Um, an American professor go to India and he started to chastise India from not simply jumping onto the bandwagon with Ukraine. And when India was done explaining all the the, the destruction that we ourselves have caused, when the Indians were done talking about the financial policies of the United States and how it affected other countries uh, without most Americans knowing these things, the professor had nothing to say because the reality is we only know what we're told here in the United States and not what our brand of capitalism has done throughout the world. Is that right? Absolutely. Let me give you another example that makes your point. Uh, I mean, I'm, I don't mean to repeat it, but I think it'll, it'll help people understand it. Last Sunday was a national election in France, an important right. ally. I want to point out three facts And I won't embarrass anyone watching or listening to this program by asking them whether they were aware of the following facts. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, The sitting president, who's been the president of that country for several years, Emmanuel Macron by name, uh, 72% of the French people who went to the polls and voted, (laughs) voted against him. Mm -hmm. In other words, 
the French people, more than two thirds think he stinks as the leader and they don't want him. That should have been a remarkable headline because of what it implies about what is the second most important economy in Europe, namely the French. Almost not a word of recognition. Mm-hmm. Number two, the election was presented as if the two front runners, a right of center president, Macron, and an even further right wing anti-immigrant a woman named Marina Le Pen, that that's it, that that's who the French mm-hmm. are all excited. In other words, France is way over on the right. Okay, let me give you the information. Marina Le Pen got 23.1% of the vote. Okay, uh, let's be real clear. That's less than one out of four people mm-hmm. in France voted for the extreme right wing. Number two, there was a third candidate. By the way, the French had a dozen people running Mm -hmm. because the French, if you don't mind my saying so, believe in freedom of choice. You should have a lot of choice when you go to the polls. We in America seem to be very happy with having basically two to choose among. And we all know how hard it is to keep them separate one from the other. Okay, so let's go back to the France. There was a third candidate. His name is Mélenchon, uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon. My family's French, so uh, I, I follow these things. What did Mélenchon, who's Mélenchon? He is a left-wing socialist. He is to the left politically of Bernie Sanders or AOC. Uh, he, like them, he's a socialist, right. but he's more left-wing than them. What vote did he get? Remember now, Marina Le Pen got 23.1%. Jean-Luc Mélenchon got 22%. I heard, yeah. In other words, the very least you ought to know is that the socialist left is virtually in a dead heat with that far right. But I'm not done. One of the political parties running for president was the French Communist Party. Okay, How much did they get? Two and a half percent. Had the Communist Party unified with Mr. Mélenchon, and those two parties could discuss doing things like this together, and they've done that in the past. Had they gotten together, the combined vote would have been 22 for Mr. Mélenchon, two and a half for the Communists. Together, that would have given them 24 and a half, and Le Pen would be out of the run. I mean, what? And America have no idea. Last point. In the run-up to the election, here's an issue that was not a major concern. Ukraine. They were, the big issues were inflation. The big issues were the gap between rich and poor. The big issue was the failure of the president of France uh, to get his program done. Another big issue that he wants to raise the retirement age. In other words, uh, not to let people retire until they're older than the and age. Ready they to are. die. Yeah. Yeah. And and not only the left wing, but the right wing in France went after him. And the overwhelming majority of French people agree, not with the president, but with the right and left. You could have had an interesting conversation. 
France is a couple of hours by train from Ukraine. They have every reason to be interested. They aren't. Why might that be? Why are, you know, you could have had interesting mm -hmm. debates and discussions. Instead, the Americans are left with a completely caca. I mean, I don't know how to say this politely. Nonsense idea. And, and this isn't unique to France. It's true for more, the German story. The German story is here's how it's understood in Europe. When the war in Ukraine breaks out, the Germans who want to keep a good relationship with Russia because they depend on Russian gas and oil, particularly gas. So they're not going along. Biden sends uh, Blinken over there and they say, we need you to get on board. The Germans say, uh, what's it worth to you? Answer, <laughs> answer. We're going to let you rearm. We're going to approve the rearmament of Germany. Let's remember, yeah, Germany, was decided, yeah. right, Germany was denied an armory after World War I, for which they were blamed, and World War II, for which they were blamed. The United States said, we will support, get ready now, a tripling of your defense budget to give you the biggest army in Europe. Everybody else in Europe is now aware, not that they have a problem with Russia, they knew they had a risk there. They now understand Germany. they have a problem much closer, yeah. Germany, which is already an economic powerhouse inside of Europe and will now be a dominant military force which it wasn't before, right? okay? Here's the irony of ironies for Americans. Why would Germany want that? They're not gonna have a, a war with Russia. They'd probably lose that. They've lost twice trying mm -hmm. to take over Russia. I don't think they're gonna do it. You know who they're worried about? The United States. Right. They <laughs> want to be freer to figure out which way the wind is blowing and having an army that the United States has to worry about gives them a bit more wiggle. The ironies here that we will look back on, they should stop everyone dead in their tracks to begin to rethink. Otherwise, if you follow the mainstream media, it's like trying to understand Shakespeare by reading a classic comic book. <laughs> I, would, I agree with you wholeheartedly. That's why we do what we do, Professor. Now, let me ask you something. Now, let's get a little bit localized to America here, because there's, uh, while what we're talking about has a lot to do with what is ultimately going to occur with the, with the birth, the, the living and the death of, of these economic systems. But in the, in the short term, I have got into several discussions with some people who have a tendency to believe that inflation is divine. And what I've been trying to point out to many is that how can inflation be divine? How can we have a gas shortage when a uh, gasoline shortage when Venezuela is sitting on a pool of oil? And because they don't want a they don't want the oil to. In, and I, first of all, let me put it this way. I'd like you to I want to know if you agree with this. My contention is we're not exploiting Venezuelan oil because the corporations uh, under the current Venezuelan government cannot control, uh, cannot control it. In other words, uh, the, the, the basic tenet behind Venezuela is that the oil resources belong to the people. And I know there's corruption, et cetera, et cetera, but that was Chavez's main tenet. Right. Yeah, no, I, I could not agree more. And I think, you know, 
I don't mean to be impolite, but the, the economic literacy in the United States has not been developed. Uh, as as polite as I know how to be. But let me explain. An inflation is a word that simply describes a general rise in the price of pretty much everything. Not everything the same amount. Right. You know, food goes up this amount, and fuel goes up that amount, and rent goes up. But in general, prices are rising. Okay, let's begin the basic economics. Who determines a price? In other words, who raises it if it's Those going with up? price and power. Right. And that's called the employer class. Right. Roughly, roughly in the United States, 1% of our people are employers. The other 99% aren't. The other 90%, 99%, we're the ones who pay the prices, but we don't set sell them, uh, set them. Even anyone who's listening who, who ever had a job knows that if you're not the employer or you're not on the board of directors of the corporation, no one ever asks your opinion about setting the prices of what's produced in the company where you work. A tiny number of people. So if you're not happy with prices going up, the anger or the upset or the question should be directed at the 1% of our people who are in the position to do it. Moreover, we live in a capitalist system which allows them, because they are quote-unquote free enterprises, to jack up the price whenever the hell they wish to. All right, second point, and I'm just being an economics teacher here. Why do employers make the decisions they do, including the raising of a price? The answer is that the employer's every action is dictated by what they themselves tell us dictates it, namely to make money. They're in business. To, to Profit is their bottom line, they tell us. They are taught in business school, and I've taught in business school. They are taught every decision you make should be geared towards will it improve your profitability or will it not? If you raise your profits, your career goes up. If you don't, your career goes into the toilet. Okay, so the honest answer to why employers raise prices is the same answer every kid in, in business school writes on his or her exam. It's because it's profitable. If you think you can get away by charging more, that's your job to do it. I'll remind you of a famous saying that describes capitalism. The seller always sells at the best price the market will bear. Uh-huh. You know what that means? You jack up the price if you can get away with it. So we have an inflation because businesses think they're in a situation where they can get away with raising the price. And in many cases, they're right. But that's why we have it. It's not from God. It's not divine. It's not like a like a rainfall coming out of nature. And by the way, let me let me end this by reminding folks of a Republican conservative president named Richard Nixon. On August 15th, 1971, he went on radio and television. He was the president at the time. And he said, we've got a terrible inflation. And here's what I'm going to do. 
and he declared what came to be known as a wage, wage price, price freeze. Control. Yeah. Okay. And what? Here's what he said. As of tomorrow, we gave the talk in the late afternoon or evening. As of tomorrow morning, if you're a business and if you raise your price, we're gonna arrest you and throw you into jail. Because <laughs> guess what? The inflation stopped on a dime. There is no issue here. There's no big fat complexity. If if you were an honest society, you would be debating right now the pros and cons of what they're doing now, which is not stopping the inflation, currently running eight and a half percent, according to the government release yesterday. Uh, every Everything you do now, including doing nothing, has all kinds of consequences. But we don't even have a discussion. We don't even have a debate. When I explain to people the history of Mr. Nixon, most of my audience never heard about it. This is new news for them that we've solved the problem. So again, it is this sad bubble of, of self-imposed ignorance that, that people like you open up by your work, by your exposing these kinds of things. But it's really tragic for a country with the mounting problems we have to be as childishly narrow in what it thinks about, let alone discusses. That is why I love to have you because you really, I, I think, first of all, given, given what you do, it ensures that people get exactly what we're talking about here, educated. Now, Professor, uh, we have one last uh, question here, and that is, where do we go from here? I mean, we, are, we, we understand we're in a down spiral, but for those of us who still have to exist as we go down, where do we go from now, from here? Well, I think we have at the highest level we have to come to terms with a basic choice. And I, I can't tell you whether the Republicans or the Democrats are the better bet to figure this out, to face it, and to deal with it. I don't have much confidence in either of them. So I'm appealing to the average American citizen. I have more confidence in him or her. So here's the question. After the American Revolution in 1776, the British said, let's give it one more trial. And in 1812, we had another war between mm -hmm. Britain and the United States. They, and the British were defeated again. They still didn't accept it because in the Civil War, the British seriously considered siding with the slave South against the North. They didn't do it in the end, but they certainly considered it. Okay, we can have with China war. I mean, I can't imagine it. The risk to the entire population, literally every person alive, is catastrophic. So I'm terrified that they will bumble and fumble their way into a military conflict. And looking at Ukraine, wow, there we have mm -hmm. a kind of early installment. Yeah, it's terrible. So the alternative is compromise, sit down, you're, an, you're still important here in the United States. You're still a rich country. You're the richest single country in the world. You still have a lot of chips on your side of the table. Sit down, work out a compromise that allows the Chinese to grow and gather into their hands what they have proven they're capable of doing, but that safeguards the world. 
and that gets the world in. Look, those were the ideas behind the League of Nations. That was the idea behind the United the Nations. We were supposed to create institutions that would never again risk the kind of horrible wars that made the 20th century so tragic. We either learn to do that, we either get politicians that are prepared to do that, or we are taking a risk that will make you and me and everybody alive today face an indefinite future of, of well-deserved anxiety. Dr. Richard Wolf, Professor of Economics, Emeritus University of Massachusetts Amherst, thank you so kindly for having been on Politics Done Right. And folks, don't forget to get the sickness is the system when capitalism fails to save us from pandemics or itself. Thank you so kindly, Professor, for having been on Politics Done Right. It's my pleasure and thank you for producing these programs on an ongoing basis. It's one of the most important public services anyone could do. Thank you. We spend a lot of time deconstructing the news, trying to, trying to parse it into a form that everybody can understand. We try to find those little nitpicks where uh, it goes, it flies above the fray, etc. If you really like these videos that we do, I want to ask a big favor. Please go ahead, number one, subscribe to our channel, and number two, please join if you can. Thank you so kindly for watching. Keep watching. Please remember to share. We must populate the entire internet with our progressive message, a message that we know is what most Americans say that they want. So help us please join.